0: Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50. We're also going to be in the New Testament and beginning in Luke 18, but we'll start off in Isaiah chapter 50, looking at just um, four verses, four through seven of Isaiah. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some in the seat in front of you that you can use. This is a portion of Isaiah. We had actually gone through Isaiah all last year. And, um, and so many of the people in this church are very familiar with, with these passages. And this is a section in Isaiah that is called the Servant Songs of Isaiah. And they are really direct words of the servant, King Jesus, to his people. So That's why they're called the Servant Songs of Isaiah. So as we're reading these verses, think of these as words directly from your Savior. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter fifty. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The words of Christ for weary souls. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. It is amazing that we have a God who... Made it, made it very clear He was going to speak to us and reveal truth to us with words. That what we hold in our hands, this Bible, is, is literally God's Word to you and me. That we don't have to think or we don't have to guess at what God wants to tell us. He's told us plainly. He speaks to us. I mean, think about your relationships with people. If, if you weren't able to speak, and use words, how difficult it would be to have a relationship with someone. And I'm sure you know that relationships can be strained sometimes in marriage, in family relationships, children and parents. And we know when relationships are strained, one of the first things that goes away are words. We stop talking to each other. We don't want to. We we don't communicate when the relationship is strained. But We have a God who speaks to us in words we can understand. And not only that, Jesus, as we read in our call to worship, is the Word made flesh. He's the very very incarnate Word of God to us to reveal who God is, who we are, and what we need from Him. And so this morning we're going to be thinking about the Word's of Christ, and how his words rescue us, his obedient words in our place. And to do that, I want to look at just three different conversations that Jesus had in the Gospels. And I'm first going to start in Luke chapter 18, and look at his conversation that he has with the rich ruler. So Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23, if you you can turn there if you'd like. So this is the word of God speaking through Jesus as Jesus is the word of God in this conversation that he's having, revealing truth as to who he is. And as you read this, think about this is, this is a religious man, this rich ruler. He knows God's word. He knows the law. He knows what the commandment is. He's very religious and he's wondering, how do I attain eternal life? He says... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's got the right goals, right? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The man responded and said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him then, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the man heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was extremely rich. This is a very interesting conversation as is most conversations with Jesus and other people. But what is this man saying? He's saying, I want to know for certain, how can I enter eternal life? How can I get to heaven? How can I assure my place there? And Jesus, in responding to him, is is really trying to show him that he can't do it on his own. He can't earn it on his own. He's, he's again, citing all of the, the commandments that he's supposed to do, but then he gives him one commandment that he's not willing to do. He's not willing to give up his wealth. He's not willing to do what it takes to follow God fully. And so it's as if the rich young ruler saying, good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responding in really this way, saying, poor sinner. He's trying to show him his sin. Poor sinner, look what I've done to rescue you forever. That's what God says to all of us who want to do the right thing, who want to enter into heaven and eternal life, we are designed to want to do it ourselves, to want to make it ourselves, to want to earn it ourselves. And he says, look what I've done. Not what you can do. Look what I've done to rescue you forever. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it by your own means. And so as we think about what he's saying to the rich ruler, Jesus is really telling you and me this morning that he came to save the religious. He came to save those, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who had this air of being right with God or holier than everybody else. He came to save those people too. The faithful church attender and Sunday school attender or teacher or pastor, he's saying, you need to be rescued. You need to be rescued from your sin. You can't keep all the commandments perfectly. And that really is the whole story of the Bible. As we read through Isaiah, it's clear that Israel failed time and time again. Israel, God's people, his chosen people, rejected him again and again and again. So what's so amazing as you read the Bible is that Israel failed, but they're not ultimately rejected by God. He doesn't ultimately cast them aside And so it's clear he doesn't leave his people, but they often leave him. In Isaiah 59, we read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. When we feel distant from God, when you or I feel distant from God, It's not because he has left us. It's very often because we have left him. And it's our own sin. It's our own sin making a separation between us. Because God is powerful. He can do anything. He can save anyone. No one is outside the grasp of his saving mercy. But what Jesus is trying to show that rich young ruler is that your obedience, though good, is not enough to save you. Your obedience is not enough to save you. In fact, the gospel says your obedience is actually a hindrance. That You must look to another's obedience in your place. And when you see Jesus being perfect for you, that changes you. It makes you want to serve him. And that's where the obedience is created. Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You must repudiate your attempts. You and I must repudiate our attempts at obedience if you want to be saved. But God is telling them He hasn't rejected them. His mercy is more than the weight of their sins. So if it's not about our obedience, the question becomes how will holy and just God dwell with a sinful, covenant-breaking people? How does that work? If God is so holy, if He is so righteous, how do we dwell with Him? You may be asking yourself, why does God stick it out with me? Why does God keep coming back to me with His grace and His mercy year after year, month after month? He's still with me. Why does Jesus stay in a bad marriage with us? Why hasn't He divorced us? Because He's obedient. Because he is faithful to the covenant, ultimately. Because Jesus was obedient in our place. If you go back to Isaiah 50, we see that it's because of his words. His words are for those who are weary, but it's also his obedience for us. Verses 5 and 6, The Lord God opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. We see the active and passive obedience of Christ. We ask, what must we do to be saved? Jesus responds, look what I've done to save you. You must, if you want to understand Christmas and the gospel, you must understand that first of all. It's ultimately not about what we can do. The gift of the gospel is that it's a gift that we have to accept first and foremost. And then we go and do because we've been saved. The next conversation I want to look at is in Luke 19. Just a chapter forward in the gospel. Verses 1 through 10. And it's a scene that any child who's gone to VBS knows. Zacchaeus and Jesus and their conversation. Every kid knows that song. Chapter 19 verses 1 through 10 in Luke. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So you know about Zacchaeus, right? He was a, a chief tax collector. All the other Jews hated Zacchaeus because he was working for the Roman government to take the taxes, to overcharge the people, to keep them in poverty while he got wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and worked for the, the Roman occupation. They really did not like Zacchaeus. He was a sinner. He's not seen uh, well in, in the religious sense. And so in this story, we see Jesus coming uh, through the town. Zacchaeus, being a wee little man, needed to get up high to see Jesus. He wanted to see who this celebrity was. But everybody was crowding around. And he gets up, and Jesus, seeing him in the tree, says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. We have got to realize how significant that is, to stay at someone's house. It's to accept them. It's to bring them in. It's to... It's to tell everybody I am, I am endorsing this man by staying at his house. I'm welcoming him in. It's way it's it's packed with meaning, way more than we understand that to mean in our day and age. Everybody else wants to see Jesus and have him stay at their house. He's inviting this chief tax collector to stay at his house or to go to his house. So of course he hurried and came down, received him joyfully, and then he. Everybody says what everybody's thinking. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Who is a sinner. And here we see the second lesson in this conversation. The first is that Jesus came for the religious, those who are trying to do the right thing. Here we see Jesus coming for the irreligious, those who are sinners, who openly, uh, uh, everyone knows they're lost and wayward. Jesus came to save them too. He responds, Jesus responds to the crowds Says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I don't know which camp you're in and those first two groups. Are you the religious type? Or are you here this morning trying something new, coming to church, irreligious, doesn't go to a church? Jesus is after both of you, the one who's been faithfully attending, who is uh, here and thinking that we've earned our place here because of, of, of our religious performance that we've put on, He's come to save you from that. But He's also come to save those who do not know Him, but who, who are seeking Him and are held back by your sin. He came to save the lost just as well. He lived perfectly for us. He was actively obedient for us and He was passively obedient in what He endured and suffered in our place. It's One of the most amazing things about the incarnation is that Jesus was made a baby, but this baby was going to grow. He was going to end up becoming 33 years old and suffer for us and endure not only the cross, but endure this life, all the, all the difficult things of life He was going to endure as well, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Isn't that amazing? Jesus learned obedience as God. In his flesh, he learned obedience. And going back to Isaiah again, notice the willingness of Jesus to be mocked and beaten in our place. That he took our punishment for us. He says, back in Isaiah, I gave my back to those who strike. That Jesus willingly gave himself over to the beating that he didn't deserve. He was dedicated to this task of suffering for his people in mind and body. And I think we shouldn't forget that, that that Jesus' incarnation... And his obedience and his death was all voluntary. God didn't necessarily have to do this. Jesus didn't have to come, but he did it. It's plainly clear in John 10 when he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for my own accord. No one took Jesus' life. Why was he on the cross? Because of his love. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down to my own accord. I have, an, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it back up again, this command I've received from my Father. Everything Jesus did was intentional to save you, to love you, to die for you. In the last conversation, we see that clearly in his words to the disciples from Luke 22 when he's sharing the Passover with them. Luke 22, and we'll go to ver- starting in verse 14. And as we move into the time of the supper, this is what the Lord was doing. He was. He was sharing the Passover, but he was totally transforming it at the same time. It was no longer a meal that was going to look forward to the coming of the Messiah through the sacrificial meal, but it was now in fulfillment of what he was about to do on the cross. He says this, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so it was at this meal that he shows them what he's about to do, that he's going to lay down his life for his people. His body will break. His blood will be spilled. And so... As his church, he's given us this sacrament, we call it. A sacrament points to what he's done for us. It's a sign in that way, but it's also a seal. It's a confirmation of his love for us, that as surely as we touch these elements and drink them and eat them, that he is with us, loves us, and his death is sufficient for our salvation. Uh, this is for God's people to to take these elements and to eat and to drink is is a way to um, proclaim your faith. So this is for Christians. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. You're not a Christian. Um, this is no way to pressure you to take it. In, in fact, we'd rather you, we want you to sit and we want you to to see what's going on and to ask questions about who is Jesus. This is for those who've been baptized, who trust in Him. And are his disciples, just like the disciples were the followers of Christ the first time he instituted uh, this meal. It's for our faith to be nourished. And what an amazing day we get to celebrate this on Christmas and remember what he did, why he was born in the first place. He was born to die for our sins. Uh, I'm going to pray, and as I pray, those who are serving can come forward. Dear Lord, we we pause for a moment and we ask you, would you set these elements uh, and set them apart for this holy moment, this holy use, where we are encouraged by what you've done to save us, Jesus? Would you be here, Jesus? Be with us in this sacrament as we eat and drink in faith. Would you increase our faith? Would you increase our bond as believers, and the unity of the church as we trust in you. So bless us now, and thank you for this meal which points us to your sacrifice, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for feeding us, nourishing us, and being with us. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. And would you bless us as we go out from here. Fill us with joy and rejoicing in the salvation that you've given us, the hope that we have in Christ Warm us, Father, with your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.